Well, looks like, hold on, which kind of force out of die is this? Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's two kinds. Um, I got a two. A two. Okay. The topic we'll be discussing today, Jeremy and Chris, is how can you make food and drink an interesting part of a role-playing campaign? Hello and welcome to Roll for Topic, a roundtable discussion about topics related to running role-playing games. I'm Chris Salzman. I'm Andy Rao. And this week we are joined by Jeremy Bai. Hi, it's good to be here. We're really happy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join us. Yeah, so I mean, we have we have 100 questions um, for you <laughs> lined up here. But uh, before we get into our topic and all that, um, I guess, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what, what do you work on, that, those sorts of things. Well, my main day job is as a writer and a translator. I It is kind of a long story, but the short version is basically I got interested in China and Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. I'm American, just straight as American as you could get. <laughs> and I ended up starting to learn Chinese. I moved there and stumbled into working as a translator, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I've translated a lot of Chinese fantasy fiction. It's mm-hmm. primarily serialized web fiction. I have translated a few um, traditional novels, although none of the novels I've translated are officially licensed, uh, but the serialized web fiction is licensed. And I've done that as my career for quite a number of years now. Mm -hmm. And I've also done some original writing projects as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Some novels that I have put out through uh, Rafe Marked, which is a a indie publisher. I've self-published some. And then I also uh, signed up with Osprey to do a role-playing game centered around Usha, which is a genre of Chinese martial arts fiction. And uh, right now I'm working on a secret project that I can't talk about. Um, (laughs) I'm waiting on a contract to be signed. Uh, Once the contract is signed, everything will be official and I can talk about it. But until then, I can't. And I think that contract signing might happen as of this recording in a couple of days. So okay, a little bit too early for me to talk about that. But so you can't use like pig, pig Latin to talk about it or yeah. anything? <laughs> um, it's a new translation project okay. uh, and probably a big one, but I can't really say yeah, the details. Sure. Um, yeah, well, uh, so we're going to have some links, I think, in the show notes here. Um, so you were also a YouTuber, I guess, um, right? So when I was I was looking up how to pronounce uh, Usha um, and I ran across your video was the first one that popped up. So it was like, oh, cool. good work, good work on your SEO there. And all that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll drop some links into there. You know, So if anyone's interested in like, yeah, how'd you get your pen name? Can you speak Chinese? you know like your life in china and stuff like that it's all really fascinating stuff but we won't we won't make you belabor that when there's ready material on the internet <laughs> for that and then too if you sign that contract we'll drop the link in okay cool yeah jeremy i came across your work in like there was this weird sort of coincidence last year my uh, teenager started taking studying chinese language uh, in high school so kind of as a joint project with them, I've been trying to read through uh, the romance of the three kingdoms, but was mm. finding it really challenging. So I was looking around online, like, are there books with annotations or notes or something like that? And a book I picked up that turned out to be authored by you is um, Understanding Chinese Fantasy Genres. Oh, cool. And I realized that the three kingdoms isn't exactly like a, a you're the expert on genres. It, three kingdoms doesn't seem exactly martial arts fantasy but it seems to have at least a toe in uh in that world so this is a really neat book and then right around the same time at my friendly looking local gaming store that really only carries D and pathfinder like ran- randomly i stopped in and there's this 
Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, Wuxia role-playing uh, book from <laughs> Osprey, a company I totally associate with uh, war game and um, military history stuff. So I was like, it's not possible to leave the store without purchasing it. <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit about, is so Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades is your role-playing game co-authored with Brendan Davis, I think, who has also done some gaming publications in this general genre right yeah how did how did this come about did you guys approach osprey did they reach out to you how did it how did you wind up with this uh this book well brendan like you said has done i would say a significant amount of stuff through his um publishing company i guess you could say bedrock games um wandering heroes of ogre gate is um what he's known for in in that regard and righteous blood ruthless blades the a lot of the mechanical stuff is actually taken not directly from wandering heroes of ogre gate but kind of it's it's based on the same stuff and osprey was fine with that that's kind of what they wanted from the beginning basically brendan and i met a long time ago when i was first involved with the rising popularity of the translation scene he was actually had not yet published wandering heroes of ogre gate at that point and he reached out to me to do an interview of me on his blog that's mm -hmm. how we connected and then I was super interested in Wandering Heroes of Ogre Gate because Wuxia is kind of what got me, one of the big factors that got me down this path of Chinese stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was asking him about it and ended up getting involved with one of his playtest groups for Wandering Heroes of Ogre Gate before it was launched. It was kind of like toward the very end though, so I, I didn't really have that much input. By that point, I think it was almost in layout phase. So I didn't have too much input, but I did have a little bit. And then we kind of just remained friends through the years. Um, I stayed with his play group for a while doing Wandering Heroes of Ogre Gate. Later, I, one of the novels that you can find on my website or on Amazon is called Legends of Ogre Gate. And basically, I did a novelized version of some of the ancient mythology of his Wandering Heroes of Ogre Gate world. Oh, fun. Um, so it's, you could consider it, I guess, an official fictional version uh, basically in the wandering heroes of ogre gate world there is a thousand year old history of how martial arts start started and so i went back and wrote that and then in concert with that we and me and him ended up doing a module for ogre gate based on some of the content of the novel so it was like okay. i wrote the novel then we wrote a module <laughs> eventually i'm pretty sure osprey actually reached out to him because they were wanting to you know have a lot of different genre titles in their role-playing series and after they reached out to him, he reached out to me because he was concerned about being able to to do it all by himself. He wanted to have somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of and whatnot. And so I thought it would be great. I got involved with it because it was a passion project kind of thing. And so we spent uh, roughly about two years or so from the beginning to the end. When I started, when we started the very early design phase, I was in China and um, then I moved back to the United States about halfway through. We did probably about a year of game testing, I want to say, between his group. He has multiple groups. I formed a group specifically for it. And yeah, that's kind of like the, the, the process from the beginning to, to the end. And we published, by the time it reached the publication date, it was right in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the publication date got pushed back numerous times, I think because of all of the there were so many issues during that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it did eventually come out. I believe it was, it came out in the UK at the end of 2020 and uh, in the US at the beginning of 2021, but I'm, I might have those dates yeah. wrong, but yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So I noticed that uh, Paizo has an upcoming big product release that looks like it's set in the, the Chinese martial arts genre. Is there something in the water right now that is fueling like an interest in this genre? Do you see an uptick in interest in this genre as you interact with people, gamers or otherwise? I'm not totally sure because I feel like the there's been a couple, there have been a few major spikes in interest over the past decade or so. I would say the first one was what got me sucked into this whole thing, and that was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was in 2000. Yeah. That caused this really big explosion of interest in Wuxia. There was a bunch of movies or a handful of movies like House of Flying Daggers, uh, mm-hmm. one one hero as well, and there were others. Uh, there was uh, what was the the there was an Xbox and PlayStation game. Oh I yeah, forget it what it's called. Jade but, Empire. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jade Empire. Yeah. yeah, and whatnot. But then that sort of died down. Right by the time I started getting into um, translating, that was kind of dying down. Hmm. And then when I got into translating. I started out doing wuxia. I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but basically yeah, there's yeah. different subgenres. Wuxia is like the sort of grounded martial arts. And then there's other genres like Xuan Huan and Xianxia, which are more fantasy, uh, magic, and, and stuff like that. Um, around the time I got into translating, I was doing wuxia translating as a hobby just to improve my language skills. And then I stumbled into the serialized web fiction of this like high fantasy kind of stuff that got really popular like really really crazy popular Hmm. but i feel like it's the wave has crested sort of it's the the initial um you know it's so so new and different to so many people i feel like that phase has gone over so as for where we are now i'm I'm not totally sure i'm not sure if paizo is kind of like saw that spike in interest and then got the ball rolling and it's only now coming to fruition or if you know where where along the line they st- they got this idea it's really hard to say yeah um, I, I feel like i don't have my my finger on the pulse of what's going on behind the scenes enough to know <laughs> for sure yeah. so i mean so you've obviously read you know a ton of chinese fantasy is there is there anything like you know so like right we talk about tabletop role-playing games and stuff on this podcast quite a bit is there anything in chinese fantasy that's like this is a, a trope or something that happens in those stories that would be really great to bring to like a Western audience. Is there anything that's like your go-to or like, Oh, like this is a cool thing that you're, you're just not experiencing. Well, you know, uh, I would suggest going to my YouTube channel. I have two videos. Oh, you I do? did okay. a, a survey of a couple thousand readers asking them what tropes they disliked the most and mm. which tropes they liked the most. And I got 10 each. So I won't be able to touch on all of them. Yeah, yeah. And it really depends. Like there are some tropes in these novels, which I think could work well in games, especially for people who are not familiar with them. For example, there's the young master trope. So anybody who's read a lot of these novels will know this trope. It's so common to where the main character character will run into what the, the character trope known as the young master, who is a young, usually rich, usually important, connected person in some kind of big family or big organization and they're like the you know the teenage kid who is backed by this super powerful organization usually very arrogant and Hmm. you know trying to throw their weight and power around and the main character always clashes with this young master character and then a lot of times we'll defeat them in combat but then that arouses the wrath of whoever is backing them Uh, so this young master trope is just so so common that it's become to many people like something they hate because it yeah, always right. happens yeah. all the time but it's yeah. a it, i think it's a great easy way for um that you could throw into a game where the party encounters some person who is actually not really that necessarily that strong 
Um, they get into a conflict with this person and then they defeat that person only to come to realize that they've actually provoked this much larger, much more powerful organization, whether it's a criminal organization or a kingdom or something like that. Yeah. That Interesting. In these, uh, and and I don't want to relentlessly quiz you about genre elements that I, I could probably look up online, but <laughs> does the kind of the standard D&D setup of your party of adventures, each of you has kind of a, a thing that you do that roughly balanced with each other and you're roving around getting into trouble and solving problems and gathering treasure. Is that something that translates pretty well back and forth with uh, the Wusha games you run? I think it does. Yeah, it, it can totally work well. That said, for Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, we kind of veered a little bit away from that. Um, much of the inspiration for this game came from an author named Gulong, and he's one of the typical or I should say one of the most famous of the Wuxia novelists. He lived in the, he was active, you know, decades ago. He died, I think in the eighties. And his books are a little bit unique and different. They're easy to translate, which is I think why so many of them are, are available. I've in total translated, I think three of his novels. Hmm. And so we intentionally were taking a lot of inspiration from him and his fight scenes are kind of unique in a special way. A lot of times in Wuxia, novels and especially in books i'm sure many of you in your audience have seen wuxia movies maybe they're not experts but surely have mm-hmm. seen like crouching tiger hidden dragon or one of one of the famous ones whether the shaw brothers movies from decades ago or more recent ones um especially in the movies you know the fight scenes tend to be really long and drawn out that's why they're cool you know all this back yeah. and forth these these special moves and the novels are like that as well a lot but gulong fight scenes are a little bit different a lot of the times they're more like a um, like a samurai Shambara fight scene where you have two mm-hmm. enemies facing off and like the wind's blowing and like it's showing their eyes and their hand goes down mm-hmm. to the sword and then they, they take the sword out of the sheath a little bit and then they, they run toward each other and there's a, this clash and then one of them drops, that kind of thing. Yeah. Long's Wuxia fight scenes a lot of the times are like that and you have these really powerful, strong martial artists who uh, they can – possibly kill their opponent with just one hit even a very strong opponent i'm I'm not saying this happens with every single fight scene in his novels but it happens a lot and so we kind of took inspiration from that and so in righteous blood ruthless blades the combat is definitely more suited toward dueling or maybe small party combat as opposed to these giant melees now we do have there are signature abilities uh, for the martial artists in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, which are like for be- being able to attack multiple opponents. Because you also have those typical fight scenes in the tavern where there's like a whole bunch mm-hmm. of goons attacking you. So it's yeah. not like um, they're only designed to be run as duels. But that said, we do encourage that. And the way the combat phases are built is intended to like hype up that drama and tension, especially between two different characters or maybe a couple characters and one bad guy or something like that. Um, so there is a little bit more of that flavor in the game in this specific game. But if you're talking about a genre as a whole, the wandering heroes going through the countryside, fighting the villains, looking for treasure is definitely something that's super portable into the Chinese fantasy stuff. We like a handful of months ago, maybe it was a, a year ago at this point, a, a number, a number of sort of our, our group of friends were reading uh, Gideon the Ninth. I don't know if you've heard of that heard of that novel at all uh but it's, it's pretty good but towards the end of it there's these like really long fight scenes that happen that are sort of hard to follow um and ever since then like i've, I've really been thinking about that like how do you 
how do you effectively describe something that you can't visually show? And it sounds like that's something that you've thought about a lot, like, right? Like, how do you, how do you translate to make sure that you're not sort of like losing the audience? Yeah, I guess, is there anything like in your gaming or like even in your translation work that you found that's like, yeah, helpful? I mean, do you sit there and you actually have miniatures that you kind of, <laughs> you like move around and be like, this is where this person is, this is where that person is? Well, that's a good question. And for on the translating side, it's not as much of an issue because that stuff has already been thought out by the, yeah. by the author. <laughs> yeah. Although that said, a lot of times, so Chinese language is very different from English and Chinese is a high context language and culture, which basically means that a lot of times you have to take into context the surrounding language and elements in order to understand it. It's not very directly a lot of stuff is not very directly stated. And that makes it very difficult sometimes, for, especially for me, since I'm not a native speaker. A lot of those things are very difficult for me to process mentally. Thankfully, my wife is uh, Chinese and scored top marks in Mandarin in college okay. in China. And I am constantly bugging her with, with questions and clarifications. It, without her, I would have a very hard time doing what I do. So so sometimes I, I do have to put... So, thought like that into it. And then of course, I've done a lot of my own original writing as well. In my own stuff, I'm more inclined to do what you're just talking about, uh, planning it out or sometimes mm -hmm. drawing, um, you know, a little uh, a scene on a piece of paper just to make sure I, I can keep track of everything visually. Um, that said, I, I'm a pretty visual person. I, I, I have an imagination that works visually. So mm -hmm. I can a lot of times do that stuff mentally without having to write it down. When mm -hmm. it comes to gaming, I have to have a physical, something physical. If we're doing theater of the mind, that's fine, which I'm comfortable with that as well. But if we're doing theater of the mind and I'm, you know, GMing on Zoom or something like that, I will always have a piece of paper yes. written. Yeah. Or if I if I I can do miniatures as well, but um, I got to have something to to plan it out, especially if there's more than more than two or three people involved, and especially with Busha stuff. The setting is usually pretty important. You want to have a cool mm -hmm. place for the fight to happen. And so I need to know, like, where's the furniture? Where's the terrain pieces? That kind of stuff. Yeah, because it's less like standing back and you're you're launching your firebolt or something new every turn, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I watch, Chris and I joke a lot about when we read and watch things, 10% of our brain is always thinking, like, how could I do this in an RPG session, right? Yeah. So when I watch these incredible fight scenes and... So are, are like Jackie Chan movies, are they in this genre? Drunken Master? Most Jackie Chan stuff is not Wuxia. He does have okay. some that are straight up Wuxia stuff, but the majority of his work is more just Kung Fu action kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but there's like, they overlap and they blend for yeah. sure. Well, yeah. one thing I noticed, and, and maybe I'm speaking about a different genre, but I think uh, Crouching Tiger has a scene or two like this. In, in Crouching Tiger, there's a scene where uh, two women characters are fighting in this uh, really elaborate uh, dual scenario. And one of the things that makes that fight so remarkable is that the environment plays this huge role in it. And so one character will get like backed against a wall and they'll turn to their left and there's a, whatever, a wooden pole there and they'll grab it and use that as their weapon for a while. And it's something that I feel like would almost never happen naturally in like a D and D game. Mm -hmm. Um, but it feels it's such a dynamic um, experience to watch it as they they grab whatever is at hand, use it in a creative way and just, and then just rinse and repeat. Is that something like when you're playing, when you want that feel, is that something do you tell your characters, you know, do you trust your characters to just be in genre and say, 
I'm going to grab the pot of water here and and use that to fend off the the axe or something. How do you get that feel? I think this relates to something that we wrote about in the Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades book, which we have a section called Genre Physics. Mm. And we kind of go into a little bit of detail about this general thing. And I think that it, it depends on A, your group, for one thing, and B, the concept of essentially when I when we talk about genre physics, the way we talked about it in the book is basically we define genre physics as basically what movie your game is taking place in, essentially. Oh, okay. And that does affect liter- like the literal physics of how things work in the game. But more than just that, um, the whole feel about it and whatnot. And to illustrate it with um, non-Chinese related movie stuff, we use the, the uh, example of is your game taking place in Die Hard or is it taking place in Silence of the Lambs? So that's going to affect just a lot of different things. You know, if it's yeah. Die Hard, you, you know, your characters might want to shoot the gas tank of a car and it's going to blow up. In Silence of the Lambs, that would be like kind of weird. So yeah. So to answer your question, I think a lot of it depends on what kind of game are you playing what are, and what are your players expecting. What we suggest in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades is that that should be like an actual conversation that happens in your session zero or before mm-hmm. you start playing. So all so that everybody's kind of on the same page about what kind of Wuxia game are we playing here? Because there's a lot of different kinds of Wuxia. The kind that you're describing, that fight scene, is obviously um, super cool, but it's in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, for instance, that would be really tough to pull off. You could, but it would be it would be tough um, as opposed to some other Wuxia systems, which there's there's more and more coming out, which is really cool. You know, I think it's great that players have that option to check out different Wuxia game systems, take what they like from this one or that one. Anyway, the point is that would be something that I think that should happen before that fight scene even gets into it. Like are our players going to be expecting to be in that, that kind of fight scene where like all this crazy stuff is happening or is it more like one of those, you know, dramatic moment fight scenes where it's more about the tension building up between the characters and then finding out who wins in this one blow thing. Definitely two kind of different feels. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine coming up with a, with yeah, a setting in which like you tell them ahead of time, like where everything's placed right like that that pot of water is over there right like so just keep that in mind <laughs> yeah. or is it just the sort of thing where like you go and reach for it and tell me what you find when you're when you're reaching yeah oh that's fun so hey you guys do you want to transition into our uh topic here yeah let's uh, do it. yeah before we go jeremy is there anything else you wanted to call out um so we'll put in our show notes so your website you have a ton of of like gming advice and guidance for uh, Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades that would apply not just to that game, but any other game like this on your website. So we'll link to some of that stuff in the show notes and stuff. Is there anything else that we didn't ask or bring up about Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades or anything else you're working on that you want to call out? No, I think um, other than my secret project, everything is pretty much on my website. So if you link to that, people can go there and find all my social media and Join my email list if you're interested in that secret project. Uh, that's the main way I announce new stuff. And okay, cool. yeah, good. we'll put we'll put that stuff in the show notes. And without further ado, why don't we roll in to this topic, which I am uh, hoping has like actually a kind of a tie-in here to the wuxia genre. But the, just to remind us all, the topic we rolled is how do you make food and drink an interesting part of a role-playing campaign. Mm-hmm. And I guess I will just start by saying that, you know, in, in most of the uh, role-playing games of, of any sort I've played, but I guess mostly D&D type games, uh, food and drink doesn't 
play much of a role <laughs> at all, even when scenes are taking place in a location related to food and, and drink. Like I've played and run a million scenes in taverns or whatever, but I can't really remember the last time that the food, the actual eating experience was anything other than like a little side note before mm-hmm. we got into the action. So can we do better than that? And um, <laughs> I don't know, can the wuxia genre in like, does it suggest any ways we can make food and drink more interesting? So that's my little introduction. I'm going to stop talking now. I feel like I could talk about this for like a couple hours. I feel like <laughs> there's yeah. just so much to unpack. I'll, I'll start with Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. We actually have food stuff in there. Um, not It's not very heavily mentioned, but if you go to the... We have a section where we talk about the regions of China, and I uh, I was the one that was kind of in charge of that because China's mm-hmm. my thing. And so we have um, some little bullet points about the cuisine of China. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're talking just general cuisine-related stuff, and I'm, I got to mention, I'm a I'm a kind of a foodie, and I like food okay. shows. I've watched everything. I've, you know, Master Chef, Top Chef, Iron Chef, like yeah. all Gordon <laughs> Ramsay shows. Like, okay. I really yeah. love this kind of stuff. And I can envision um, using some very high-level information about cuisine to inform what's going on in a scene um or even relating to the plot for instance uh, players um noticing what other people are eating or what's being served to them how that relates to who they are in the setting um i think the most interesting thing though the most obvious connection to wuxia is poison i mean poison is such a trope in wuxia the wine being poisoned the tea being poisoned the food being poisoned um, we in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, we have a a list of something like ten different kinds of poisons. So that's the most obvious go to one. It's a yeah. big genre mm-hmm. trope, and I think it could easily be ported into any you know setting, whether it's D and D or whatever it is. I feel like when I'm running a Wusha campaign, if the players are eating and drinking the food without even thinking to check if it's poisoned, I feel like they deserve to be poisoned. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So maybe it would be a little cruel if your game group doesn't do that very often and then all of a sudden they're like eating and drinking and they're all poisoned but it's like that's something that could definitely be thrown in if you handle it with care like it like again it would suck if everybody died (laughs) just it's like a tbk (laughs) because their their dish is poisoned but you could easily work it into where um maybe it's a knockout poison they get captured Mm -hmm. or you know or giving give them a chance to notice that it's poisoned um but that for me is the obvious one right off the bat I've done the, like, you sit down for a meal with, you know, the, the big bad on accident before, you know, no, they're the big bad and right. The whole thing is poison. Like, that's a fun, a fun moment where it's like, oh, you know, like, oh, we should have checked beforehand. Yeah. The princess bride comes to mind, you know, that scene with the poison, like the poison cups. Yeah. Just like, it's so good. Right. Like, it is an excellent way, way to handle that. I mean, I don't know if you could really exactly do that in a game, right? Because there's just some some smart stuff that only works in a movie right going yeah. on that's almost like a combat scene oh like, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah yeah totally yeah there's yeah. there's something really cool about that um yeah. right yeah like investigative abilities are coming into play and all that sort of stuff in preparation <laughs> another thing is and uh well this is i know this is a family-friendly podcast so i won't go too deeply into it but uh alcohol is also a component that we have in righteous blood ruthless blades and that's um a big part of wuxia and Chinese culture. So that's another obvious one. We actually have uh, mechanical elements of the game worked around that. So I know alcohol is, could be a sensitive topic for some people. So this, you know, that would be appropriate for the appropriate 
game group. We have it as a full-on mechanical element of the character sheet, and it can be worked into the plot directly. So whether or not you port it, you would you know consider porting that into another game. That's obviously dependent on the group, but you totally could. Like I could de- definitely see a tavern scene in D and D where mm-hmm. you could use almost the same mechanics we have for the the drinking stuff in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades. Easily could work out to you know you have a barbarian getting involved essentially in a drinking contest with uh, yeah. somebody else or some, something along those lines. So that's another obvious one that I feel like is a easy way to port from Wusha into other genres. That does yeah. sound really fun. I was just going to ask, like, you know, so think about that barbarian, right? And going back to your, your, your D10 table of different poisons and stuff, right? Like, I guess, are, like, I guess, yeah, can you explain a little bit more? Like, how do you, how would you come up with, like, interesting sorts of poisons if you want to go, go down that, that road, right? Like, so there's obviously, like, the one that kills you is probably not going to be appropriate <laughs> for a <laughs> game, you know, knockout poisons, you know, stuff that probably, like, you know, makes you lose all your dexterity, that sort of stuff. Are, are there any other kind of interesting ones that either of you have run across? Yeah. Well, in terms of how to come up with them or how we came up with them, what one of the things throughout this entire book for Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blaze is we wanted to take, we wanted it to, we wanted everything in the book to feel like it's something that you could read about in a book or see in a movie, but at the same time, not have it be obvious copies of movies mm-hmm. or books. Like nothing in, everything in here is our original stuff. A lot of stuff is, takes shades of interpretation from movies and stuff, but nothing is like just, oh, well, this is the character from this yeah. movie, but we gave him a different name. We don't hmm. do anything like that. So how we came up with those poisons was just straight up imagination. And mm-hmm. one thing you'll find out is if you read a lot of Wusha or watch a lot of it is it's a lot of very over the top and very just off the wall imagination levels. So mm-hmm. that's what we tried to do. I think one of one of them, one of the ones that we have that I liked a lot is a poison that so in, in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blades, everything is about your martial arts. You have three key types of martial arts and you have ranks in those martial arts. So we have a poison that basically reduces all of your ranks in all of your martial arts to zero. So it basically turns you into an ordinary person with no abilities until you get the antidote to that poison. So oh, that's great. Um, that's another trope that happens in the the novels that I translate, not necessarily the Wuxia novels, but in the the more high fantasy stuff, it's a real common trope for the main character to at some point in the story. Well, you know, same thing in, in comic books and stuff as well. The, the mm-hmm. main character loses their powers. Yeah. Um, that's a yeah. common story. And that, that can be fun. Um, I've actually, I do have to say though, I've never actually used that poison on a character and never actually run that kind of scenario yeah. in a game. So <laughs> this is all theoretical, but I can imagine yeah. how it would be a, a cool yeah. twist. <laughs> you've been, you've been polymorphed into a middle-aged man. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that makes me think, when I think poisons, my mind starts thinking of, like, real-life poisons, right? Mm-hmm. This this one will make you nauseous, and this one will, you know, have this other debilitating physical effect. But what you were saying, Jeremy, makes me wonder if, at least in a D&D context, you could take, like, the effect of a spell and just have the vector of that spell almost be the poison. And then mm-hmm. that unlocks a whole wacky range of, of things it suddenly sounds a lot more fun than just some variant of like, okay, you have a minus three penalty on dexterity yeah. for the next hour. Uh, 
Yeah, so Jeremy, I don't know um, how much how many video games and stuff you play, but so Andy and I were actually just talking about Final Fantasy fifteen a little bit earlier <laughs> um, today. There's this really great scene in it. Um, it's a uh, cup noodles like sponsored <laughs> part of <laughs> development or something. So there's like there's a commercial for cup noodles like in, inside the game. Um, but anyway, so the that game in particular uh, is pretty fascinated with food. There's a whole sort of like cooking mini game in there. You know, like it's not poison, right? Like it actually gives you buffs, you know, and like increases your abilities and stuff. So you have to go and find these recipes and find the ingredients and sit down and actually find find time to cook them and then then use them like that. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's opportunities and stuff that you could use in game to yeah give yourself buffs rather than, yeah. Um, I can totally see that. There, speaking of food stuff, you know, there's one of the coolest, one of my favorite scenes in a wuxia novel is from one of the classic uh, Condor Heroes novels, um, which are now there are fan translations and official translations of them. But basically, in one of the one of the famous scenes um, or sections in one of these stories, the lead female character is trying to get uh, a technique from one of the old master characters, and the old master character is a big foodie. And she mm. knows how to cook. And so he demands that she, that she cook him. I can't remember how many. It's like 72, you know, <laughs> dishes or something. I forget what it was. And so she has to go on this big quest to find recipes to cook for him. She oh, steals a, a, I think if, if I remember correctly, she like steals a duck recipe from the Imperial, you know, the Imperial mansion. Or it's it's been a long yeah. time since I read it. But yeah, it, it seems like it would be a fun kind of thing to throw into a campaign, a food-related quest where you're having to find recipes or, that will help mm-hmm. somebody or something like that. Oh, totally. Yeah, because I mean, think about it. Like, okay, so you've just finished your big adventure like that. Like, you're having a party. You're going to have a feast and stuff. Like, what if the, the meals at that feast were from recipes that you collected along the way, right? Like, that could be, like, super fun. I think for the right, the right sort of player to have that little side quest running the whole game. Chris, that was actually what I was going to bring up was that use of food in that video gamey way where if you like eat the pizza you have like plus 10 hit points you know for the next 24 hours or something (laughs) and that feels a little too blatantly video gamey for me you know just plug into DD. but i do like the idea of like the food you eat will affect your experience throughout the day so as each day starts select from these options i'm not sure if that would be too finicky or not but it would cause the players to pay attention to something that otherwise you just kind of hand wave mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, I wonder if it's sort of, it's, it's somewhat like encumbrance rules where if you reduce it just to constantly checking in your spreadsheet to make sure that you're under a certain certain number, it's like, that's not as fun. But if there's some sort of like in-game story reason for it, like it's more more fun. Same thing, like if you just, if food is reduced to rations, right? In your game, like you got to make sure that you have five ration units with you at all times. Like that's, that's less interesting versus like, oh, we need, we need to hunt and find something to, to eat, you know, like, yeah, and have, have the appropriate recipes and stuff like that. You know, it's almost like the, with a lot of things in GMing, it's almost the care that the GM puts into it is what makes it, makes it alive and, and worth playing. You know, the care that the, the GM puts into presenting, I guess, to the players and the players interacting with it, right? That, that kind of interplay. One of the settings we have in uh, Rex Blood Ruthless Blades, one of the maps that we have is actually a, a wine house, I guess you could say. And one thing I did with that when I used it in my playtesting, um, or actually, no, it wasn't playtesting. It was just a, a for fun campaign that I did was I had a, a the adventure set in that wine house and I created a menu for the mm-hmm. wine house with like special noodle dishes and stuff um, with different how much did they cost and 
the players my players really dug it like they were yeah. wanting to know like what are the ingredients in this one like why is this one so expensive and at that uh. time i didn't even have any positive effects like it wasn't they, they didn't get a buff or anything but when they mm-hmm. heard like oh they have the 18 dragon noodles with special chili peppers from sichuan yeah. they were like whoa i want to have that and it's like <laughs> they're spending double for the the amount of normal noodles that had literally no effect yes. on anything but they were totally digging it so hey yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> They'll remember it forever and you'll remember it. Yeah. And that's you know, so one one aspect of food that maybe it's almost too obvious, uh too obvious is just the cultural place that food has, like mm-hmm. in the types of stories you're telling. And I mean, if you think about when I think about just in my boring American life, the centrality of food and the effect that food has on like my relationships, you know, um, we use food to comfort people to thank them i i don't do that you could use you could use food or the way you serve it to insult somebody you know like there's uh food is like really tied into our inner like our interactions with almost everyone in our lives um Mm -hmm. and i mean that's more of a meta thing as you think about the course of the story you want the setting in the story you want to gm but when I think about that, it's amazing that it's there's not a chapter about like food in like the player in the Dungeon Master's Guide or something, right? Yeah, maybe there. there is. I've never. Is, I haven't. No one's read it. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't read the DMG, so don't don't email and tell me there is a chapter about food. <laughs> yeah. Um. You know, I realized what I was alluding at earlier. I didn't express it very clearly, but what you said kind of made me some pieces click. If you were, for example, running a mystery a mystery adventure food could be an awesome part of it. Um, we have a section in the uh, Reich's Blood um, book that's called, it's just a sidebar. So there's a famous uh, Wuxia detective character named Detective D, I think based off of a real life character. And so our little sidebar is, is your player Detective D or are they playing Detective D? And the point of this is basically, are you expecting the character, the player to pick up on all of these clues Mm-hmm. Or is it that the the character that they're playing is like super smart and will notice these things that the player might not necessarily notice them? And that's kind of an important thing, especially when you're dealing with a game like Rice Spell Do This Blades that has a lot of cultural context, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring it up is food could be an awesome clue. Like let's say you're searching for a person and you know that this person is from South China and your characters, however, are in North China. Then they notice for example, a shop that's selling food items that are unique to South China. Well, that Mm. could be a big clue now. But then again, the players might not notice that. So you have to, you would have to weigh it um, in terms of like what I was talking about. Is the character going to know it or is the player going to know it? That's a GM decision that obviously is going to be affected by the player's knowledge. But you could do the same thing, I feel like, in a Dungeons and Dragons setting. Assuming you handled it with finesse and care, you know, are you yeah. in a human run city and you're looking for a, an orc? Well, maybe you could go looking where orc food is sold, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless yeah. of whatever genre it is, I think you can totally tie food and drink into it, especially in that kind of context. That's a really clever way, I think, of putting that sort of like, yeah, should the should the players discover it? Yeah, or should um you should just sort of tell them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like so if you if the only clue you have in that entire city is like, did you happen to catch that I mentioned that this place sells <laughs> southern Chinese cuisine? Like, yeah, maybe rethink that as your your only clue. But yeah, I would probably only use that. I would thinking about it, I would probably only use it 
in a group that's really plugged into yeah. Chinese cuisine and food, either that or make it the subject of a role or something. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. But I mean, talk about like something that if the players picked up on it, they would feel so clever, right? Like that's, that's the sort of thing. I mean, oh yeah, that would be like, oh I get, yeah. Making all those connections. Um, I think it's, it's a really fun part about gaming. Andy, you were mentioning something about like insulting people with food. And I just had this vision of like being in a tavern or whatever. And like all the other tables keep getting their food before you. Yeah. Right. And like, just trying to push that and see like how long <laughs> before, before the barbarian starts, you know, flagging the waiter down asking like you know what's happening <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right well uh i think we're probably coming up on time here but does anyone have any sort of final thoughts on the topic of food and drink in an rpg that we didn't touch on or they want to share or a favorite uh, moment involving those things in a game they've run or played in or anything like that i've got nothing <laughs> Look like you're thinking, Jeremy. Though, so we'll give you a second. Well, uh, the final, I guess, my final thought is just, uh, and I, I, I hate to always be being, oh, sorry, I hate to always be bringing it back to righteous blood, but I guess that's kind of yeah. what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that's great. There, there just is such an element of formality in um, treating people to food and drink in in Chinese culture, and so we include that in the game, and I think it's a cool thing to do, uh, you know, who's toasting who, and returning toasts, like, this goes back to the drinking part, um, just because uh, there's a whole section on drinking culture in the, mm-hmm. in the book, because it's, it is pretty important, important in terms yeah. of who is toasting who, the order of who's being toasting, who is doing the toasting, returning the favor, that kind of thing, there's just yeah. endless amounts of, of opportunities uh, in the, in the built-in, adventure that we have in the book one of the very first encounters is supposed to be at a roadside tavern encountering some local thugs who are kind of getting drunk and you can very easily incorporate a a situation where they're trying to goad the players into a drinking contest and do the players Mm -hmm. uh go along with it do the players out drink them do the players refuse to participate it just can go so many ways and whichever way it goes there's an opportunity to have it be a really fun scene yeah oh that's great (laughs) that does sound awesome all right well guys i think it's about time for us to wrap up Mm -hmm. jeremy we're really uh grateful that you um took a chunk of your uh of your day and you shared it with us uh we'll highlight a number of different things like your website and we'll point to some of your work in the show notes so if you're listening go check that out on the website and chris do we have any other uh wrap-up uh stuff we need to do here um, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I will go into my whole spiel if we're if we're all set. But yeah, <laughs> thanks again, Jeremy. It was my pleasure, and thanks for having me. It was it was a blast. Oh yeah, yeah. sure. All right, Chris, take us away. Uh... Cool. All right, <laughs> Roll for Topic is part of the Roll for It Media Podcasting Network. Our sister show, The Splat Book, can be found at thesplatbook.com. Uh, John Corey and Kyle Latino host that one, um, and it is always a delight. So go check them out. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Again, Jeremy, really appreciate you being being here um yeah and taking the time it was super great but um i've been chris salzman i've been andy rao remember if your players are having fun you're a great gm 